0: James Borshers is a resident artist in the Jackstraw New Media Gallery program. His installation, O Bictum Resonare, is a powerful meditation on the nature of what Borshers refers to as harmonic resonance. Borshers is a composer and performer with a long list of accomplishments and varied interests. He's been a rock drummer, a professor, and a sound artist. He sat down in the Jackstraw studios with oral historian and documentary producer Steve Rowland to discuss his work.
1: When I walked into the room, mm-hmm. I was visually arrested <laughs> because it's stunning looking. So what I would like you to do is to describe visually what it is that we're, we see when we walk into that room.
2: I think when you enter the space, there's a large ceiling in there and there's a bunch of metal objects. Um, some of them are instruments. Some of them are kind of abstract. What I think of abstract objects or found sounds, like tanks and um, other kind of random pieces of metal. And there's a arrangement of those objects in a way that I think moves from what I would consider abstract objects to more musical sounds. So just the fundamental idea that you have sort of uh, metallic sounds, uh, something that's not recognizable as an instrument moving to sort of bells and traditional classical kinds of instruments. Um, as you look across the space, and then there's a, a great deal of light focused on the objects. So you have the white wall behind all these hanging objects. And I think of the way the, there's multiple reflections or shadows of the objects behind uh, the hanging objects. And I think of that as a kind of visual metaphor for resonance. So the, what I think sonically is happening in the piece, this idea that there's sort of unfolding of resonance through these various objects, is partly at play visually. So, that what we see behind the hanging objects is a kind of visual resonance, the idea of light and shadow. Also, I was really interested in manipulating the height of the space. So, I want the person to feel enveloped by the objects and the sound so that we can hear the trajectory of sound move above a person, around a person, and throughout the space. And there's three systems that are running. So, some of there's two fixed playback systems that can be manipulated a little bit by the viewer, the playback of those systems. And then um, there's one computerized system that's controlling the sound. There's these four large tanks.
1: Those are kind of like the big… And when you say tanks, tell us what those tanks are. That's
2: like a four or five-foot oxygen tank um, that I, I got a few of those off Craigslist, and then I had a metal worker cut them so that they would resonate. Uh, Did you
1: know how good they were going to sound? <laughs>
2: I th- I thought they would probably sound cool, but um, part of this is a lot of experimentation, and you know, I wanted some objects that I thought were really big and, as you said, kind of arresting in the space. Like at least some objects that would have a kind of you know symbolism or sort of anchor the piece visually in the space. So I was just searching for all kinds of objects, and then I came across a guy who modifies scuba tanks into gongs and he had a sound file that i heard online so and i was like oh that sounds pretty cool maybe i'll maybe maybe i can find a bigger tank than that <laughs> and i found this uh, orange one that's in the center that, you know i thought was the most striking one that i found and i got i got that one and modified it into a, a big bell and i thought and i still actually didn't i wasn't aware if it would sound great because the those tanks actually weigh like a couple hundred pounds <laughs> i think so i didn't even have a means to sort of elevate it until I got into space, really. You know, I could kind of bend it off the ground, hit it, and I thought it would probably sound pretty good if it was hanging. And then I ended up getting a few more tanks, and the two that are on the sort of far corner, east side of the room, (laughs) is, is one that's just cut in half. So I had one really big one that I just cut in half, and I grinded it down. And I mean, also, you know, I have a lot of experience as a percussionist, and so I I know how big pieces of metal that resonate sound, so I have a, you know I have a sense mm-hmm. that that's it probably would sound good.
1: But what what are the different ways that you're getting sounds out of them? I mean, one of them there's a mallet next to it, and you get the wonderful chance to hit it, mm-hmm. and it sounds incredible.
2: Well, first, I, I'm also kind of thinking of this sort of ritualistic quality of the experience as somebody walks in there. So this is sort of a, like, you know, like in various cultures, in Buddhist tradition, there's this, you know, when you go to the graveyard, you know, there's often a big gong as before you enter that you often hit to kind of awaken the spirits and get you sort of mentally in a state of kind of reverence to enter that space. And I think there's other... You know, sort of references to that, that you that the action of this giant hanging thing with a with a mallet next to it gives you the kind of sense of ritualistic act or a certain reverence for that space, I guess. So that's that's what I was hoping would happen. doesn't mm-hmm. always happen when everybody mm-hmm. goes in there. Yeah, and then there's a series of processes that happen with that gong. So that has sensors that are attached to it. And when you strike it, there are speakers in the other tanks and... There's four other speakers that are spread sort of from low to high in a kind of diagonal trajectory from the floor to the ceiling and and in a sort of spiral shape from the point where that tank with the mallet is. And so the sound is sort of dispersed through those speakers and it's selected from different possibilities. And all of those are manipulating sounds from primarily that large tank and then some of the other tanks and, and metal objects in the room. So at some spots in the piece, the piece is 27 minutes, so there's a sort of 27-minute, you know, things that could occur over 27 minutes, and then it cycles every, every 27 minutes. So there's a big chunk of it where it's very subtle. You hit that gong, and then it sort of disperses other sounds throughout the space that are from the spectrum of that gong or that tank.
1: But uh, the, the way that the sounds emanate Mm-hmm. In other words, there's different ways that you can make a sound. One of them is by hitting the thing with a gong. Uh-huh. The other one is a, there's a speaker, but the speakers are inside the tanks. Right. So how does that work? Where and where, what's triggering those? That's they're triggered by the from sound
2: when you when you hit that tank. That's triggering some of the sounds. Right. So you're hearing that the parts of the spectrum of that tank sort of dispersed in different ways from just hitting it. So you're hearing the resonance of that tank, but then also parts of the spectrum of that tank so the what we say like the envelope of the sound is changed every time you hit it so it doesn't have the same outcome each time you hit it then also yeah i mean so the idea is that the speakers that are in these bells and tanks and other objects are meant to resonate the the actual object itself so you hear the resonance of the bell or the tank in addition to the pre-recorded sound or the synthesized sound so you're hearing a combination of live and
1: pre-recorded now you also have some big pieces of i don't know how you would describe they're just big flat pieces of metal Mm -hmm. now what's the sonic aspect of those are they picking up sound from the other things yeah i mean i'm i'm thinking of the whole
2: the piece as a whole has its own kind of resonance and if there's things that are loud in the space the you know the just the vibrations of everything in the room will sort of ring To some extent, so those those large pieces of metal are also sort of reflecting some of the sound and resonating a little bit, and you know, viewers can also kind of hit the those other pieces of metal um, or the other tanks as they move around the
1: space. So, where did music come from? That's a good question. I don't really. uh,
2: None of my family is really musical necessarily. Um, My mom played drums in the high school band. She's certainly sympathetic to music and, you know, like encourages to us to pursue music. And my grandmother played piano and Oregon, and she was kind of, they were, my grandparents were really religious, so they had, she had an organ and a player piano and that kind of stuff in her house.
1: Most of the music she played was religious music?
2: I, For some reason, they were really inter- interested in polka. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they, they listened to a lot of polka music. I remember that. And she would play hymns from the, you know, yeah, church hymnal, you know, on the organ in her house.
1: Polka is interesting because it can include a lot of improvisation, uh-huh. and it can also get quite intense and wild. Yeah, I mean, well,
2: they had a lot of polka, you know, the reels for the player piano. Right. That's what they liked to listen to, I guess, in the evening. They'd put on a, a nice polka,
1: and oh. uh, did they dance to it?
2: Not that I know of. Yeah. But may, maybe. In the younger days or
1: you said something about uh, nobody in your family was particularly musical Mm -hmm. do you now and you're a professor of music now Uh so you work with a lot of students yeah is there a really clear difference to you about people who are just intrinsically musical and people who are not is that a distinction
2: uh that's an interesting question i mean i think people uh, approach music in different ways you always find kids who are really ambitious about music but they m- maybe don't seem talented like what, however we define talent in music i mean i think talent is is in part ambition and it's in part some sort of natural ability right the people who i think of as you know really having something have both those you know there's kids who are they're amazing players but they're not very ambitious
1: about practicing it's just something they do but if somebody's interested in music and they don't have the natural ability, can they push through it and still become a musician?
2: I think so. I guess I think of myself partly in that way, that I didn't have piano lessons when I was young, and I didn't have um, and I see kids now who are you know to have piano lessons since they were four years old or whatever, and they have a a lot of advantages in that sense. But I think you can you know practice and work hard. I mean it doesn't it doesn't prevent you from still having something to say. You know, mm-hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be, you know, a great pianist or have a great sense of harmony or, you know, There's a famous quote of Schoenberg telling John Cage, you know, you're, you'll never be a great composer and or something to that effect. And you're going to spend the rest of your life hitting a wall or, you know, and he said something like, I'll just bang my head against that wall for the rest of my life. Then that's what
1: I'm going to do, you know, and <laughs> I mean, that's. When did music first grab you? When, when did you first say, hmm, that's, that's something?
2: Well, I mentioned my grandparents. That I mean that's probably one of the earliest examples I can remember, like going to their house and I would sort of plink around because they had an organ and a keyboard and a player piano in the, all in the living room. And I would just, you know, while the adults were doing stuff, I would just go in there and kind of plink around. And my parents got me a, like a little kid drum set when I was probably four or five that I destroyed in like a couple months probably. So, I, I think I had an interest in music. I always wanted to listen to music. I my parents bought me like a boombox which in the 80s was like a pretty awesome thing to have <laughs> if you were you know in 4th grade or 5th grade or something. So that was um, I listened to music a lot and I played drums in band in you know junior high and high school band and played in rock bands with my friends and played guitar and you know would rehearse every Saturday and try to play Nirvana and you know whatever kind of stuff that was sort of popular at that time or Led Zeppelin or you know classic rock tunes and and you were playing usually. drums I'd usually yeah I'd usually play drums and then I also started taking guitar lessons when I was probably fifteen or something like that I still don't know that I thought about music seriously I think a lot of like a lot of composers you know it wasn't until I was almost in college that I realized that there are people who are alive that are composers that are actually doing something. They're not just a bunch of dead guys. And, you know, the fact that you can write music and make a score and give it to an ensemble and they'll play it is, I didn't know that people were still doing that until pretty late, you know. Certainly more recently, I've been thinking about this, this idea of music. And you can say, for example, like all sound is music or all sound is musical, but sounds themselves have a, particular physical characteristics. So as a composer, you can either negate those characteristics or you can enhance them or you you know, there's there's ways you can modify them to make them mean whatever you want them to mean. Or whether, I mean, whether there's, people could debate whether there's even meaning in music at all, whether it's just sound. You know, why does music have to mean anything, especially if we're just talking about sounds and not text, something without text. That music inherently carries an intrinsic meaning is debatable, I think. But we know that, you know, the, the overtone structure is a certain way and um, there's, sound has its own kind of physicality. Just like, uh, I mean, anything like, a, you know, you could think from a, a sculptor's point of view, a, a stone or whatever has a certain characteristics, certain attributes, and you can shave parts of it away or you can add stuff onto it and make it something else. But in general, it's, you're either sort of coming to grips with what the thing is and how you're going to modify it. You can either deny the shape of a stone, you know, I can carve it into something else so it looks like a a person or I can keep that intrinsic quality and make it look like a bunch of stones or like a bigger, you know. In that way, like what we're trying to do as composers is we're taking those raw elements and then trying to make them into something.
1: Right well like i I remember being in a music class years ago, and we had this long conversation about what is music mm-hmm. and you know people kind of pitched in their own different ideas and so one of the key questions was, did it have to be human mm-hmm. Did it have to be a human who was organizing the sound uh-huh. and then there was a question, did it have to be organized right <laughs> could, it, could it just be random yeah, so I don't know what do you think about those two questions
2: well, for certainly those are. Absolutely valid. And we already have, you know, your bird song and whale song, so it certainly doesn't have to be human for us to think of it as music. For me, I think, especially now, lots of composition is getting into an area where that's... The idea of organization is sort of arguable. You have algorithmic composition or and really stemming from, like, a lot of John Cage's work and a lot of this uh, 60s sort of experimentation where the thing is, you know... I mean, everything has some kind of organization. Anything that's time-based is organized. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, we can get in discussions about what is randomness or, you know. is Okay, so
1: let's say, for instance, you're sitting outside on a bench and a bus goes past and you hear that. And then somebody coughs and then somebody starts a jackhammer. Mm -hmm. And then you had recordings of those. Yeah. So is there a difference between them occurring in the random order in which they occurred where somebody wasn't controlling them versus you taking the recordings of them and organizing them into a pattern of some sort. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is one of those music and one of them not music?
2: I think a clear distinction would be the moment you hit record, it becomes music. The moment it's, it's documented, it becomes something else. So the media type is altered. So if we're listening back to it, it's music. And the, you know, a, a composer or an electroacoustic musician or sound artist, the moment they have that recording and they start listening to it, they're going to think of what's the loudness of the bus that's passing? What's the loudness of the jackhammer? What's the rhythm of the jackhammer in contrast to the, you know, the, the bus passing? You know, is there uh, a silence in between? How does that silence affect the overall structure of the two like, loudest elements? And you sort of start to th- structure it in your mind compositionally. And this is a great point. So then you can either start to shave away from that and make it into something that I think is, you know, it might have a sort of musicality to it already. So I might leave it alone. I might not touch it, you know, or I might try to bend it and change it in a way that makes... Then you start... That's I feel like the more I start changing things, then I start asking myself, why, why did I change it in that way? And what's the usefulness of changing it to make it is it somehow more meaningful because i've changed that kind of structure of what naturally exists anyway you know the two i think are sort of fully valid you know as a piece of music from my experience it seems like people who came up in this sort of tradition of 60s 70s 12 um, tone music composition and a lot of teachers i study with and people i encountered certainly on the east coast in new york and boston you said that when they were in school, this was always the common story that they were sort of everybody had to write twelve tone music or you know atonal music. I mean, there's now a strong what I think of as post minimal music or what's those guys are sometimes referred to as post minimalists like like Michael Gordon, who's tonight at the Seattle Symphony or David Lang or you know this sort of New York scene that seems to be interested in in also incorporating rock or indie rock kinds of sounds or that at least that kind of vibe in into. Uh, contemporary music. I mean, there's a lot of other interesting things happening. It's always, you know, the more you look, the more there's Mm -hmm. interesting things going on. You know, there's a big interest in this, which I still think of as kind of stemming from this academic tradition. People like Helmut Lachenmann and Shirino and um, folks at Harvard that seem to be really interested in that kind of thing now, Uh, you know, where we're eliminating pitch. Entirely, and that it's just very highly structured sounds, scratching sounds, and you know, uh, this kind of thing. There's a big uh, scene for electroacoustic music and computer music. What is, what uh, is that,
1: electroacoustic music?
2: Um, you know, just electronic music, but music that's used using uh, recorded sound. So computer music, I could say, I mean, some people make the distinction that computer music is something that was made from a computer, that it doesn't, it's not sampled. Sounds or something, for example, your bus and the jackhammer, for example, would be uh, electroacoustic music. If I made that into a composition, but I think also a live player and electronic sound would be electroacoustic music. Right.
1: So, so as an sound. as an artist, what what's the difference between having the opportunity to write a composition that you can put on a piece of paper and hand to a player or an orchestra? Mm-hmm or being able to create something like this, which is an immersive experience that's probably never the same.
2: Right. I think there's something gratifying about having this kind of experience for sure. Um, I'm using a lot of, you know, computer and programming and stuff like this for this piece too, and which I've also used in a live setting. So certainly the difference of, you know, writing a piece for a performer and a computer and it's at a concert and you have 10 minutes and you have to hope that it, <laughs> Nothing messes up it's much more rewarding in a way to to work on a piece like this where you have three weeks to make sure it works and then it's up for a long time and if it's not working right, you can sort of tweak it and fix it and reprogram it and you know if it doesn't sound quite right, so you have a lot more flexibility if you're trying to do that kind of work, something that has um, you know I've had a number of composer friends too that you know are, are trying to do really complex interactive pieces for you know piano and computer, for example, or other, other instruments, and they've just gone back to pre-recording everything on a CD and playing it back, because it's just more solid that way. You know, when you get to a concert and then suddenly the computer crashes, or <laughs> it's mm. getting much better though. I think there's been a lot of interesting things done, and I think I'm still very interested in writing that kind of music.
1: Well, tell me about the kind of reaction you're getting to this piece.
2: Kids really dig it. <laughs> And uh, why do you think that? Why do you think? Because they, I think they like that it's tactile; that they can play with it. That there's a, you know, a mallet in there that you can hit stuff with. I mean, um, at the opening, I thought people seemed generally receptive to it. I had one guy who came in and just screamed at the top of his lungs because he wanted to hear the vibration of the those objects in the room to his voice. So I thought that was an interesting uh, reaction to it. <laughs> um, Did you hear it? Yeah. No, song. I mean we were because we were all in the lobby and you know, at the reception having having our wine or whatever, and we just hear this like blood curdling ah! <laughs> you know, scream, and we I, I thought oh maybe one of the objects fell on somebody or something <laughs> for a second. You know, there's like that moment where your heart stops for a second, and then the guy comes out. and He's like, oh yeah, I just want to hear what my screaming voice sounded like against
1: the these metal plates. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I'm really taken by the fact that the kids like it. And that mm-hmm. and then of course that the mallet and being able to to interact with it mm-hmm. in that way. And it and it sounds so good when you hit it with the mallet. Mm-hmm. It's not only just being able to physically swing the thing, it mm-hmm. sounds great. So it's very gratifying and it's also sort of unbreakable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there's a but there's something else that I think is that goes back to all of the questions that I've asked you and that I was asking you about Your own emergence as a musician, as a composer, which has to do with the way that we, the human beings in a society, imagine organized sound or music or whatever word you want to use Mm -hmm. for it. So in other words, like a kid who grew up and, you know, their grandparents played polka music (laughs) and played church music has a fairly limited palate. Uh or a fairly limited spectrum of things, right? Mm -hmm. But a kid today who's listening to stuff on iTunes and on TV and this and that, and then he gets an opportunity to walk in here and bang on that gong and then hear the way that you've organized the sound, which is eclectic, different, and still beautiful, Mm -hmm. gives him or her, I'm imagining... Just a whole different perspective on what what sound is. Yeah, I'd be
2: very happy with that reaction. And I, I mean, I was thinking for a while about trying to do something with resonance, and I think that's part of the idea that you, when you strike that tank with the mallet, and you hear the spectrum of the sound unfold, you hear the sort of inner complexity that every sound has.
0: James Borcher's installation. Obiectum Resonare was created through the Jackstraw New Media Gallery Residency Program. Podcast interviewer is Steve Rowland. Produced by Steve Rowland, Daniel Gunther, and Levi Fuller. Jackstraw Executive Director is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jackstraw Artist Residency Programs are made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, arts fund, and individual contributors.